the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Back Wednesday, August 24th, 2022. Welcome back. I am Seth Liebson. 602-508-0960 is our number. 602-5080-960. Spending money we don't have on things we don't need. That's how Kellyanne Conway put the Biden College Student Loan Forgiveness Program plan into perspective on television last night. Spending money we don't have on things we don't need. I'll get to the first part in a moment, but first the line on things we don't need. There's a lot in that point, intended or not, and I'd like to break it down. First, the college loan forgiveness plan is aimed at taking away a burden, a life-stymieing burden on transportation, work, and starting a family. This, according to such scholars as Professor Elizabeth Warren, quoting from CBS this morning. She was on saying the college loan debt problem is keeping people from transportation, work, and starting a family. Now, has anyone taken a step back and asked the question, if a $10,000 debt is strangling you, and this college bailout plan is for people who have debt, college and student loan debt, up to $10,000, up to. If a $10,000 debt is strangling you, might you not have bigger problems in life? Now, keep in mind, as the forgiveness maxes out at this suffocating $10,000, a lot of the forgiveness will go to those carrying less debt, perhaps people with student loan debt in the neighborhood of $4,000 or $5,000. But if that kind of debt is keeping you from living your life, is it maybe not time to adjust your life? I'm going to wager that most adults have a lot more debt than that, especially family-owned small businesses, and yet they are able to engage in, well, transportation, work, and family formation, if not family business. I actually don't need to wager. According to Experian, the average American carries over $90,000 in some form of of combined consumer debt from credit lines or credit card accounts to loans to mortgages. Most Americans, it turns out, carry some debt, and just the average credit card debt of your average American is in the neighborhood of $7,000. Who's being strangled here by these numbers? As for this whole program being eligible for people earning less than $125,000 if you're single or $250,000 if you're married or filing jointly, are you really going to tell me an individual earning $125,000 or a family earning $250,000, say, in Huntsville, Alabama, or Birmingham, or New Orleans, or in any number of big cities, are in need of ten? thousand dollars or less worth of debt relief thousands of dollars they have almost no time limit in which to pay off 
requires an $80,000 a year employee in Phoenix or Seattle or Washington, D.C. or New York or Chicago to pay off? And does Joe Biden think a $125,000 a year employee in Huntsville is worse off than, say, a $150,000 a year employee in New York City? The mind reels and boggles at the economic inequities and injustice here, just as much as it reels and boggles at those doomsayers and prophets of doom telling us college-credentialed young adults cannot move on with or begin or live their lives with a debt of $10,000 or less. That, by the way, per force, shrinks to less and less every year. If you're at $10,000 this year, you're not at $10,000 next year. Of course, too, yes, the injustice and unfairness of it all. No rebates or refunds to those who did plan this out, who have worked and did and do the responsible things of paying off what they owe. We as good socialists here now dispense with justice and punish the achievers to reward what is classically known as the free rider. Are you familiar with the concept of the free rider? The equally classic understanding of the free rider problem as it originated from cattle ranching, is that because of it, the problem always comes back. It recurs always. What is the free rider problem? In some, it's the problem of a community benefit that a few people, a handful, or some percentage of people are unwilling to help pay for, but yet receive the benefit of. Not only does the free rider problem always come back, always recur, Here's the kicker. It presumes a value, a common value, to society, which makes this nub even harder to accept because we're being forced to accept in this con- in this concern that college and university educations are, per force, a benefit to society. There are a million words to say as to why the free rider problem always gets the problem back to start and recurrence. There's a million reasons as to why this is so, but these exact free rider solutions always foreordain the recurrence of the original problem. Some of this by nature, some of this by incentivizing the wrong thing at the wrong time by the wrong people, some by a general withdrawal from participation. You can see how all of that would come into play here with this program, especially as it does nothing to disincentivize irresponsibility or free riding or reduce college tuition costs or the other parts of Kellyanne Conway's deductive point about things we don't need. To wit, just yesterday, I was speaking in my monologue about the beauty of beautiful education and what its purpose was, should be, and yet is no longer. Leo Strauss put it that, quote, liberal education is liberation from vulgarity. The Greeks had a beautiful word for vulgarity. They called it aperikolia, lack of experience in things beautiful. Liberal education supplies us with experience in things beautiful, he said. Well, it used to. Now it is dedicated to iconoclasm and death and grief and sorrow and murder a trail of tears about Western civilization and the elimination in the study of things beautiful, including the nature and nurturing of the soul. So let's have a serious discussion about what we are talking about bailing out, which is people steeped in and steeping themselves in vulgarity. 
education in America was to be the best security against crafty and dangerous encroachments on the public liberty. The founders, our founders, were heavily influenced by the English philosopher John Locke, who wrote, "'Tis virtue, which is the hard and valuable part to be aimed at in education." Samuel Adams described the mission of educators as nurturing the moral sense of children, his phrase, to nurture the moral sense of children. Great learning and superior abilities, should you ever possess them, Abigail Adams told her son John Quincy, will be of little value and small estimation unless virtue, honor, truth, and integrity are added to them. American education was intended from its inception to plant virtue into its charges, its students. All real education, our founders thought, and the Greek philosophers before them, and for centuries every thinker between them thought, was the architecture of the soul and the arranging of the furniture of the mind. In his book on the failure of higher education, we're talking colleges and universities here, Alan Bloom wrote in The Closing of the American Mind, quote, there is no need to prove the importance of education, but it should be remarked that for modern nations, which have found themselves on reason and its various uses more than did any nations in the past, a crisis in the university, the home of reason, is perhaps the most profound crisis facing their society, close quote. Unfortunately, we have become the kind of nation Alan Bloom was worrying about in 1987. We founded ourselves on reason. If our schools taught the Declaration of Independence and the Federalist Papers and the ancient Greeks, our founders kept redounding to, more would know that. And as a country based, then, on reason, our most profound crisis is indeed the crisis of our education system, since that is the one redoubt we have relied upon to instill, imprint, nurture, teach, and implant reason. Instead, these erstwhile homes of reason have become hothouses of passion and extremism, all in the name of intellectualism and moderation. You can do that here, you know. You can change the meanings of words and the meanings of organizations and institutions. And Karl Marx put it that if society was to be convoluted, it must be done through the institutions of, quote-unquote, social education. Sipping off the bitter cup of what the Soviet Union was dispensing, George Orwell could write in 1984 that, quote, the proletarians are not human beings. He's saying all people for whom the revolution is seeking to vindicate and rescue aren't to be thought of as human beings with souls and reason, but rather as tools or perhaps better non-animate clay to be shaped by the orthodoxy of the revolution. He goes on, quote, by 2050, earlier probably, all real knowledge of old speak will have disappeared. The whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, this is, this is, this is George Orwell in his novel, 1984. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron, they'll exist only in new speak versions, not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory of what they used to be. Even the literature of the party will change. Even the slogans will change. The whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought as we understand it now. Orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. Close quote. You ever walk into a faculty lounge or onto a college campus or into a civil rights organization or meeting on the left? 
The only noun that can describe all those places to perfection is the word George Orwell used, orthodoxy, an orthodoxy of opinion. You know where the word orthodoxy comes from? Greek, orthodoxos, meaning precisely having the right opinion, ortho, right, doxy, opinion. Orthodoxy is different, by the way, than recto ratio or right reason. One, orthodoxy is based on command and control, if you will. Right opinion or right reason based on the dictates of those in power is, yeah, based on thinking, based on thought, based on open dialogue. In any event, our colleges and universities are about orthodoxy, the orthodoxy of unconsciousness arrived at by dispensing with and eliminating not only beauty, but the study of those who used and taught it by describing the struggles of the mind, the soul and the heart, and the struggles of reason and thought. The struggles over what, it cons what, what constitutes a human being in the first place. And for that, you need, of course, some degree of religious education, if not observance, and the study of those who dedicated themselves to the unfolding dialogue of justice and beauty for the past 2,300 years or so, which is why religion in the public sphere is out, prayer in the schools is out, and so too Plato, Shakespeare, Chaucer, Milton, and the rest. Orwell was right. It all would come a little bit sooner than 2050. English majors are no longer required to even take a course in Shakespeare today. But at Cornell, an Ivy League college, you can take a course in tree climbing. Did you know that? You can take a course in tree climbing. While if your brother or sister goes to Princeton, another Ivy League, you can take a course on getting dressed. While at USC, you can take a course on Lady Gaga and sociology. While at the University of Virginia, the school Thomas Jefferson founded, you can take a course on the Game of Thrones. I can do this all day, but you'd get the point, I hope. You can also take courses on America and white supremacy, and if you are a political science or history major, this is all you will learn about America, that it is a, a systemically racist country based on white supremacy. Declared Marxists like Ibrahim Kendi get multi-million dollar endowed institutes at universities like Boston University, while declared devotees of any classical political philosophy or the beauty of American history are shown the door. Let me put it this way. Less than 20% of colleges and universities even require a course on American history, even in their history departments. I'm reminded of the line in Good Will Hunting, the movie Good Will Hunting. Will says, the sad thing about a guy like you is in 50 years you're going to start doing some thinking on your own and you're going to come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. One, don't do that. And two, you just dropped 150 grand on a, F, you know what, education you could have got for $1.50 in late charges at the public library. Close quote. But we teach now as if the purpose of education is nothing more than social change or a revolutionary act to change the world, if you will. Now you understand why the Democrats want to shove everyone they can into colleges and universities and make it as free as possible. Quite a Marxian upheaval and task is to use education as a revolutionary act, and we give degrees in it on how to change the world. We used to educate in how to change yourself, but that's your revolutionary for you. 
And that's the revolutionary world we are in now. Everyone wants to change the world. Nobody wants to change himself. And we pay $80,000 a year or more for four years or more in learning how to do that with no background or taught skills. And realize there are only so many jobs in this country in the diversity, inclusion, and equity world. There are a lot, but only so many. Henry David Thoreau put it that it's not good enough for a man to be good. He must be good at something. We don't teach skills anymore. We teach gender and dressing and Lady Gaga. And we certainly don't teach men or women how to be good. But we live in a world now, a country now, where each according to his abilities will bail out each according to his needs. Where did that come from? And so the engineer in Huntsville will now bail out the Gaga expert in Los Angeles. And the $80,000 a year construction worker or policeman in New York City will now bail out the $120,000 a year social activist in Eugene, Oregon. A one mom, single family, anywhere earning $130,000 a year will now bail out a family elsewhere, even if they make $250,000. This isn't really a condemnation to the left or an indictment of it. This is their goal. They're proud of it. And they start, as they do with so much else, with education. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. Be right back. Have you heard of that band before, Bill? Tesla? The band Tesla, of course. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It's amazing how much uh, difference a year can make. Um, or they just lie to you blatantly and through their teeth. This is audio of Nancy Pelosi at a press conference almost exactly a year ago. This was uh, July 2021. She was holding a press conference. There was a bubbling up conversation from the Elizabeth Warrens and Bernie Sanders and AOCs about providing college student loan debt relief. And this is what she said. People think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That would has to be an act of Congress. And um, uh, I, I don't even like to call it forgiveness because that in, implies a transgression. It's not to be forgiven. Get Just freeing people from those obligations uh, so it, it, it the question of who gets forgiven whether to use the term of art that is out there uh, is a is a debate do we use the whatever money there is for the broadest base of support of the those with um more people with even less debt or fewer people with so she wanders obviously into incoherence as is her uh, tendency uh lately but the first part is the most important. The president doesn't have the power to use this, to do this. So how does he get away with it? We'll tell you. It's a unique and novel construct that President Biden's lawyers put together. It's based on an idea that was supposed to help first responders after 9-11.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show for our culture and economy update. And boy, there's a lot to discuss here on just today's news. We go to John Dombrowski, as we always do. He is the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. It's a fun website, by the way. And he also has his own radio show, also fun and educational, every Saturday morning here at 7 a.m., The Word on Wealth. How are you, John? Very good. Thank you, sir. How's it going? I'm fine, but I think the country's getting a little less wealthy today. Mm, yeah. Just a little less wealthy today. The student loan forgiveness mm-hmm. plan, John, has a lot of interesting ripples and effects to it, um, especially on top of having just passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Right. I mean, we're now, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, we're now on the path to expending $600 billion on this student loan forgiveness thing. Right. The Inflation Reduction Act was what? That was supposed to fix something along the lines of $102 billion. We're, we're just killing ourselves here, John. It's just nonstop. And, and I don't know where the end is. Obviously, November is coming. Can't get here soon enough. Uh, but in this case, the uh, debt... Uh, student loan debt forgiveness program. It's uh, up to $20,000 for Pell Grants and $10,000 for the general uh, federal student loan uh, debt. And uh, they did put a limit uh, of a cap of income of 125000 if you make more than 125000 As an individual, by the way. As an individual, 250000 uh, so, uh, Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> we're talking big money at yeah. 250000 yep, aren't we? Yeah, for, for couples. Yeah. Yep. Uh, if you earn that much, then no, you don't get the forgiveness. Uh, so yeah, you're right. This it's, it's, uh, but if you're a couple, if you're a couple, yeah, but if you're a couple earning $249,000 in Huntsville, Alabama, yeah, you, you qualify, you qualify. Yeah. And, uh, which is a lot more than a couple making $250,000 here or in New York. You know, and I looked at the average, uh, student debt, uh, was, was somewhere in the 30 to $40,000 range. Right. Uh, and depending on your loan that you have, uh, the the amortization on that loan may be ten or twenty years, depending on the type of loan you have. Yep. Uh, if you look at that, I just re- ran an average of a fifteen-year uh, amortization schedule on a, a forty-thousand-dollar loan. You're looking at a little over three hundred dollars a month. Right. So yeah, I know I understand that that's difficult, but. It should be manageable if you're getting a college education in in a field that you believe in and you are comfortable that you're going to get a position in. Uh, I would hope that you could afford $300 a month since you borrowed $40,000 to get that education. You had four or five or six years to, uh, to double down on that. That's cost. right. That's right. And This wasn't a whim. <laughs> and, <laughs> and now um, you've had a number of years that you haven't had to make payments on that. That's also true. Right. right. And so all of this now comes to a head. Uh, it's been extended. The, uh, the repayment of these loans has been extended for what they say the last time. Uh, f- uh, through the end of the year. So as of January 1, 2024, uh, those loans will begin uh, the payments again. One of the other interesting aspects to this, uh, John, is you know most people who get a loan forgiven, including education loans in the past, face an IRS hurdle. You know, that's right. that's con- not here. No, not here. This no. will affect uh, supposedly affect your tax returns. Not at all. Correct. It's not a taxable event. Forgiveness of debt right. traditionally is a taxable event. Right. right. And in this case, not so much. So <laughs> it's uh, I still believe uh, the thought that I had of uh, any any future uh, college loans uh, for higher education should be government loans. 
And then once you get your first paycheck, you begin paying that back as a payroll deduction. Uh, and then the government will be able to make the money back, charge a reasonable rate of interest. So that that's one of the challenges that a lot of these uh, students had problems with is they got charged these higher interest rates. The Fed can control that then. Not that I'm for the Fed, you know, being involved in yeah, every sure. aspect of our life. But sure. this is a way to regulate it and to make sure that uh, the, the kids are not being taken advantage of and that the government can actually make money on this with Perfect. the repayment of that debt. So, Yeah. Uh, you know, what What I want to set aside some time for, John, there's a big, huge question, and maybe for our next visit we can we can think on this a little bit, is what you advise people come to you about the investment in college education right. for their children or grandchildren. Can we have a long talk about that next, you on your next visit with us? I would also say if you're getting a forgiveness of $10,000, yeah. what are you going to do with that payment that you would have had on that 10000 Oh, that's a great other point. How about putting yeah. that money to work yeah. for yourself for yeah. your future. Yeah, that's a very good point. So if you're going to take advantage of that, you have $10,000 more to talk with John Dombrowski about. There you go. Yeah. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finra and Sipican, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Plenty Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to bring back Brett Johnson from Snell & Wilmer. He is a partner at the Snell & Wilmer Law Firm. He is, for my money and uh, by everything I can see, the best uh, constitutional litigator and elections law attorney there is in the country. We're delighted he is with us and he is here in Arizona. Brett, i got to tell you something. Uh, for people that didn't see the... Um, uh, call for a special master in the uh, Trump uh, effort to uh, deal with the Mar-a-Lago raid. Um, they weren't listening to this show. You did this about a week ago. I, I did, or I, I at least uh, uh, predicted suggested that something it. like this would. Yeah, suggested it, or, or predicted that something like this would normally happen if if, if somebody wanted to um, kind of stop the process and maintain the status quo, as well as to protect um, individual rights. And and so it was interesting that you know um, um, just this last Friday that that they did file a, a separate. Um, action with a different judge um, trying to seek a, a what's called a motion, but they call it a motion for judicial oversight and additional relief, which is quite honestly an interesting way to go about this, um, rather than bringing it back to the judge who had actually issued the warrant. So that it's it's kind of a, a confluence of, uh, of, of facts here, but it is an, an interesting thing and something that we, we did expect. We just didn't expect it that late, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, I get that. Talk to us about what it is. I mean, it's kind of funny. I mean, if you study some of this stuff in law school, you kind of know the phrase, but a lot of people were kind of saying special master. What's that? Talk to us about what this is. What this is. Sure. And special master is basically uh, the the court system is is overwhelmed. They, they always have been with a, with multiple matters. And um, in large discovery issues, when the parties are, kind of, let's just say, not getting along, um, rather than the judge taking away time from the multitude of cases that he or she will have, they'll appoint a special master. Usually those costs of a special master are shared by the parties, just in case people were curious. Sometimes they might be another 
another judge that's on the bench that is maybe in, in, in the federal case a retired status, and then they're they're doing it um, um, on the, on their pay. But it's it's an individual who's specifically assigned and supposed to be a neutral um, mediator for a lack of terms, but can does have the power of the judge and can issue what usually are recommended orders that then go to the normal judge for for issuance, and that's what they're asking for here is that for a special master to go through, first of all, sequester the documents that were seized and the other material that was seized, and then to for the special master to go through the records and determine whether or not there are privileged, executive privilege, the President of the United States has executive privilege, or attorney-client privilege, which everybody knows from watching you know, TV, um, or that it's outside the scope of the search warrant. Those are the three main reasons why you would use a special master. Um, as we had background, because people might hear this in the media and maybe just a, an explanation, is Department of Justice has traditionally used what's called taint teams. They did so in the Rudy Giuliani cases. They've done so in the Michael Cohen case, um, where basically it's a separate set of prosecutors and agents that are not assigned to the investigation, in this case of the president, and they make independent determinations of privilege and whether or not it's applicable to the case. That practice has come on under significant scrutiny, but we do know from the motion that the president has put in the Southern District of Florida that a taint team has been assigned to the matter. And quite honestly, you know, that was August 8th. It's now August 24th. I guarantee you they've already gone through quite a bit of this material already. Brett, that does raise another interesting question. And you were talking earlier a few moments ago about how that it took a little longer than you thought. How long do you think now the wheels of justice. How long is it going to take for us to get some kind of conclusion to all that's wrapped up here? Well, uh, are you are you talking about the entirety of the case? Yeah, yeah. Well, both warrant? actually, the entirety of the case, and then the resolution of 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 the the classification and the documents and the release of them. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to start with the first one: sure. the entirety of the case, and, and uh, fortunately or unfortunately, and I know that um, because of the political nature of the case and the investigation, quite honestly, historically, the unprecedented nature of the case, um, th- this will not be done quickly. Um, although usually a person under investigation wants it wrapped up quickly and they have a right to a speedy trial. Um, the speedy trial clock doesn't start until the, uh, you know, a crib was called an, an information in the criminal, in the federal courts or a criminal indictment, which people are more familiar with. That clock doesn't start until that filing. Um, of course, you have what's called statute of limitation cases, um, but for false statements and for these kind of administrative, when somebody doesn't act appropriate, um, the statute of limitations can be up to five and six years before the government is forced to bring a case. So I I, I hate to tell you, it's it's probably not going to be a fast process. In regard to the search warrant matter, I I can imagine being in in front of federal judges all the time, this is going to get wrapped up quickly. They they don't like these types of cases per se because it it, um, basically muddles up the rest of their docket. They want an orderly process. They also understand the public importance of this, and they want it to be addressed quickly, efficiently, and obviously trying, trying its best to 
do correct application of the law so it could be sent up. So that being said, you know, the judge in this case, Judge Cannon, who is a district court judge, has gone back to the Trump team and said, quite honestly, we don't know what you're really asking us to do, so you're going to have to give us a clarification by Friday. And the reason being is that when you read through the motion, which is found online, as I usually do on the show, encourage anybody to go find it and read it for yourself, um, it reads more like a motion to quash than um, an appointment of a special master. But obviously that's that's part of, of the requested relief. And then at the end, they're asking for more detail on the information that was seized. And as I mentioned previously, usually that's heard by the judge who issued the search warrant. And if you don't like the judge that issued the search warrant, because that's a magistrate judge, you're allowed to ask for a district court judge or appeal the decision to the district court judge. So the process that they've used here, again, waiting so long until Friday to file their action, not using um, normal procedure, and I appreciate the nature of the case, it might be difficult. Um, that is also going to delay the process to, to get resolution on this search warrant. But if I, I got to tell you, if I was um, the person who was under a review, in this case, President Trump, I would want this quickly done and, and would have moved um, to sequester the documents so that nobody is reviewing them while this is playing out. So it was very interesting that they did not make that motion. Yeah, it is. Is there anything else that's a head scratcher to you right now? Does everything else, I mean, all of this is obviously novel, but. Yeah, I mean, on on the filing is a head scratcher. I'll be honest with you, and I've seen commentators already kind of uh, uh, take some issues with it. It's it's not something that is is normally done. It it, it there's not a lot of legal authorities, and again, it, it's it's seeking almost to um, set up a motion to quash the search warrant of kind of using those legal authorities. So it's um, um, and it's it's also gives a very good narrative, and, and anybody's interested in reading it on on the past um, communications with the government and, and President Trump's legal team. So, but it, it's, it's just a head-scratcher because of the process yeah. that they've used and, and caused it to be delayed further. Thank you, Brett Johnson. God bless you. Yeah. Always clarifying Thank the you. complex. Brett Johnson from Snell & Wilmer, SWLaw.com. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Now, the legal basis, speaking of legal and law, the legal basis Joe Biden is using for the student loan transference, if that's what you want to call it, wipeout, whatever you want to call it, is, uh, as Charles Cook put it at National Review, both cynical and ludicrous. He calls it contempt, unbridled contempt that this administration has for the rule of Law. How is Joe Biden doing what Nancy Pelosi only a year ago said he did not have the constitutional power to do? Well, according to Steve Portnoy, Biden and yes, uh, according to every news source on this, Biden is employing a post 9-11 law that allows for debt cancellation, quote, in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency, close quote. Are we in a war? The Ukraine war? What's the emergency? Ah, the present COVID-19 pandemic, says the Department of Education memo issued yesterday. There's no point in mincing words. It's a lie. It's a contrivance. It's a game. Charles Cook says nobody believes it. It's an excuse. If it makes it to the Supreme Court, it will lose and it will deserve to lose. It is facially farcical. 
of course, the HEROES Act, first enacted in the wake of the September 11 attacks, does not convey this authority, as the memo at the Department of Education claims. At no point until today had a single person in America ever believed such a thing. They shouldn't now. The rule applies to Joe Biden that he has to follow the Constitution. He's not exempt for it from it. Do you remember this notion of nobody's above the law, nobody's below the law? Indeed, given the scale of what Biden is doing, which is more than 100 times as expensive and far less legally debatable than anything Donald Trump ever contemplated when it came to building a law, the, the wall without congressional authority, Joe Biden does not actually believe that he has this authority. Rather, Joe Biden has decided to violate his oath of office, and in an attempt to cover it up, he has asked his lawyers to scour the statute books and to find any pattern of words that might plausibly serve to convince the partisans in the press that he's acting within the law. Biden's fake legal argument doesn't make sense on its own terms. In May, Biden ended, remember this, Title 42 at the border? Remember, he ended that. On what grounds? That COVID-19 no longer represented a national emergency for that purpose. Ah, but for the transference of $600 billion in the effort to pay off the universities and pay off the college educated. Yeah, yeah. For that, COVID-19 is still an emergency. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.